Hello and welcome to Ocean Matters from the Bertarelli Foundation. I'm Helen Cheresky. Climate change has been lurking in the background of public policy for decades, and it's such a huge relief that it's finally getting the sort of serious attention that scientists and campaigners have been demanding for such a long time. To borrow a quote, this is not a dress rehearsal. We've got a really serious problem, and addressing it is a civilization-wide project. And of course, as we record this, COP26 is taking place in Glasgow with the eyes of the world on the decisions being made. But it's only relatively recently that the public debate about climate change has really started to include the ocean and to include a much deeper appreciation of the connection between our global ocean and Earth's climate. So that's what we're looking at this month. How is a changing climate affecting our ocean and how is a changing ocean affecting our climate? And what policies would really make a difference for Earth's vast blue heart? Our contributors to this podcast are always a stellar bunch, but this month's crop are especially strong, impressive and influential voices in this debate. I'll be joined by Margaret Lennon, the director of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, who'll explain how the ocean is linked to our atmosphere. Steve Simpson from the University of Bristol will tell me about using the sounds of healthy coral reefs to recover lost colonies. And Lord Deben, a former Environment Secretary described as the Environment Secretary against which all others are judged, shares what policies are needed to protect the ocean. 93% of the heat that has been generated from greenhouse gases is actually in the ocean. Sadly, we realized that we were hearing a habitat dying in front of our eyes, but also in front of our ears. These next 10 years are going to be the crucial years for human beings to decide whether they want to continue to exist and they want the planet to go on being what it is or not. The grim basics are now familiar to us all. This prominent quote in the sixth and latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, pulls no punches. Here's what it says. Human-induced climate change is already affecting many weather and climate extremes in every region across the globe. Evidence of observed changes in extremes, such as heat waves, heavy precipitation, droughts and tropical cyclones, and in particular their attribution to human influence, has strengthened since the fifth assessment report. Our planet has gone through vast changes during its 4.5 billion year history, but what we're facing now is on a different scale, particularly when it comes to the speed of change. Many of the changes we can see now represent a shift to conditions that Earth hasn't seen for thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years. More serious still is that there's no emergency stop. Some of the changes already set in motion, such as continued sea level rise, are already unavoidable because the planet will take a long time to adjust to the existing damage. Even if we stopped burning all fossil fuels tomorrow, the Earth will continue to change for hundreds and possibly thousands of years. But it is critical that we don't give up hope. Better understanding and rapid action can still make a huge difference to the outcome. So let's start by understanding the problem. Over hundreds of millions of years, a vast amount of carbon has been slowly accumulating underground as coal, oil and gas. As we dig those out and burn them, much of that carbon has just been dumped into the atmosphere over a few human lifetimes. Carbon emissions have more than doubled in the last 50 years, 
with 36.6 billion metric tonnes of carbon dioxide released in 2019 alone. Now, carbon dioxide makes up a tiny fraction of the air that we breathe, but it has a hugely disproportionate effect on the way that energy travels through our atmosphere. It's a greenhouse gas, which means that it acts like a blanket around our planet, slowing the flow of heat energy away into space. Before the Industrial Revolution, the energy flowing into Earth from the Sun and the energy flowing out back into space were approximately balanced on average. But the extra carbon dioxide is effectively bunging up the plug hole, so it's not balanced anymore and extra energy is accumulating on Earth. And that's what climate change is. In 2015, the Paris Agreement was put in place to restrict global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius by the end of this century. But the promises made haven't yet matched that aspiration. There is a lot of work still to do. And the ocean is often left out of the discussion, even though it's one of the most critical components in the whole system. I spoke with Professor Margaret Leenan, director of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, who explained how the ocean powers so many processes on our planet. The ocean is very tightly linked to Earth's climate. As climate has changed, the atmosphere, of course, has heated up. We call that global warming. But most people don't recognize that the ocean has warmed much more than the atmosphere. In fact, 93% of the heat that has been generated from greenhouse gases is actually in the ocean. So it has buffered us from much more extensive warming. And as a result of that, the ocean itself has warmed. And when you heat water, it expands. And that is responsible for about 50% of the sea level rise that we're seeing. The other half of the sea level rise is due to the melting of ice on land and then runoff into the ocean. But all of that water that's in the ocean, it doesn't, it doesn't just affect the ocean, right? It affects the atmosphere as well and, and land. So tell me a little bit about that relationship. Yes. So water in the ocean evaporates into the atmosphere and it results in clouds and rain and so forth. With warming, we evaporate more water out of the ocean. Um, we have larger storms and we have more intense rainfall. Cyclonic storms like hurricanes and typhoons, cyclones, get their energy from the ocean. Now that the ocean has been warming, the amount of water that goes into those cyclones and typhoons is increasing. So the intensity of those storms uh, is increasing, and that's due to warming uh, of the ocean and then its effect on the formation of the hurricane and typhoon. You know, we, we talk about climate change often starting from carbon dioxide. And carbon dioxide goes into the atmosphere, but then the consequences of carbon dioxide go into the ocean. Just walk me through that, that chain. So we burn fossil fuels, the CO2 goes into the atmosphere, but about 27 or 28% of it leaves the atmosphere and mixes into the ocean. And that in turn has effects on the ocean. For example, just like the CO2 that is dissolved in your carbonated beverage, the CO2 dissolves in the ocean and it increases the acidity of the ocean a little bit. But that small amount is enough to make it difficult for organisms that make skeletal material 
out of calcium carbonate to make that skeletal material. It also affects organisms like oysters and clams, especially when they're very small. And let's come to your own research. You've been looking at the history of the ocean. So what what can we learn about this relationship between the atmosphere and the ocean from what we can see must have happened in the past? Well, we can look back through time and see many things about past climate. So when we went from a glacial period to an interglacial period in the past, that usually took place over thousands of years. And now climate is changing over decades to 100 years. So it's 10 times more rapid than in the past. And that's a really, really important part of the climate change that we see. And we can't just assume that everything that we know about very slow changes is going to be the same way that climate will change now under these very rapid conditions. It can result in us not being able to grow uh, plants in the same regions that we did before, so it can affect agriculture. We know that it's affecting fisheries and that many fisheries are moving to cooler waters or deeper waters. So if you were able to fish for a certain species in one place, you may not be able to fish for it there in the in the future. Or it may be impossible for that species to thrive, and there'll be many fewer of the fish. Or at the extremes, climate change can also result in extinction of both plants and animals. Well, let's talk about modern observations now, specifically about the Argo floats. So tell me what an Argo float does. Well, it's nine days, isn't it, that they go around in? What does it do when it's nine days? Yes. So an Argo float sinks down in the water to about 2,000 metres depth, and then it just passively floats with the water for about five to seven days. And then it comes up rapidly. And while it's coming up, it is constantly measuring temperature, conductivity, and pressure. So that's temperature, salinity, and depth. And when it gets to the surface, it sends all of that data back to shore via satellite. So roughly every two weeks, we're getting 3,800 profiles of the upper 2,000 meters of the ocean. And this program has been going on for about 20 years. And now we're adding to Argo, we're adding the capability to measure oxygen. And so that gives us a measurement that's related to the biological activity in the ocean. And also at the surface, the atmosphere is exchanging with the ocean. I love the Argo system because it's it's like a scan of the ocean in it. Mm. You know, for all of human history, humans have been looking at the surface and all of this was going on beneath. <laughs> uh, I love that imagery, a scanner for the ocean innards. It's like an x-ray. Um, so what do you think about the future then? What's, you know, when you look at the landscape now of what people are talking about and the problems that carbon dioxide causes, what what's your feel about the future? Well, people ask me if I'm worried about CO2 at the end of the century. And in general, I'm not, because I think that we will solve this technologically in terms of both decreasing our fossil fuel emissions and also, if necessary, removing CO2 from the atmosphere. But it's what happens between now and the end of the century when we have those technologies that I worry about. So if we don't develop that 
capability quickly, then we will experience much greater climate impact by mid-century 2050. So 2050 could be very uncomfortable if we haven't made the transition to a low fossil fuel economy by then. We absolutely need to reduce our emissions of greenhouse gases. And that's both CO2 and other greenhouse gases like methane and chlorofluorocarbons. They're they're responsible for about 25% of the warming. Professor Margaret Leenan, Director of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. If you heard episode two of this series, you'll know that coral reefs have been hit hard by climate change. Corals live symbiotically with a photosynthetic algae called zooxanthellae, but if something disrupts that harmony, then the coral and the algae part ways, leaving the coral bleached and more likely to die. Bleaching is becoming more and more common, but there were two particularly bad years in 2015 and 2016 when ocean temperatures soared all around the world. The damage done didn't just matter for the beautiful kaleidoscope of life that make their home on the reefs. The consequences also leached outward to some open ocean species, and also the human coastal communities that rely on a healthy reef for their livelihood. So what hope is there for a reef after this sort of catastrophic event? Professor Steve Simpson from the University of Bristol thinks that there is some hope and some help from an unexpected ally. While we've been focused on a reef's stunning visuals, another flood of beauty has been there all the time, If only we'd shut our eyes and used our ears. There's a soundtrack that is far more than incidental music. Steve started by telling me what he saw and heard during those tragic heating events six years ago. In 2015, I was taking my group out to the Great Barrier Reef. We were going to be looking at fish communication in these beautifully complex environments. And this heat wave hit the Great Barrier Reef for several weeks. The water temperature was degrees warmer than it should have been. And the corals cooked. They really just suffered and died in front of our eyes. And we dipped our hydrophones in the water at the sites that we'd been working on for 15 years. The sound was about a quarter the, the level that it would have been before the bleaching event. Many of the snapping shrimp had gone that make the background crackling sounds on the reef. And the diversity and the complexity of the reef had really dropped in terms of the acoustics. And so sadly, we realised that we were hearing a habitat dying in front of our eyes, but also in front of our ears. I mean, it's not that we don't know the situation with coral reefs but it's so depressing to hear you describe it like that but let's take a step back to a second to a healthy reef and there are still healthy reefs in the world so what what does a healthy reef sound like when you when you swim on a reef in the daytime and you've got the dazzling colors the amazing array of different fish species swimming around you've got lots of invertebrates that you might see crawling over the reef you go back at night you find completely different fish are out completely different invertebrates all the lobsters all the starfish but you're only really seeing 10 meters in any direction the light doesn't penetrate water very well But when you listen, you drop a hydrophone particularly, then suddenly you lock yourself into the acoustic world of the ocean. And this is a world where information travels long distances. So sound propagates underwater very well compared to in air. It travels four and a half times faster. 
And so you can be hearing animals that might be hundreds of meters away, even kilometers away, all vocalizing or producing sound. And so a natural reef is really acoustically just a wonderful thing to listen to. It's, it's the sound of the bustling marketplace. And it's not just the uh, the grown-up, the adult animals that are using sound, is it? It's, the, it's the, the young ones as well. Yeah, so so that's really how I got into sound in the first place because I was interested not so much in vocal communication in animals but in how baby fish and invertebrates find their way around. So almost all animals on the reef undergo a few weeks of development in the plankton. So their eggs hatch, they spend a few weeks drifting around in the plankton and then they find a place to live. It was really a mystery as to how they could find the right place to live. They were even finding their way back to the reef they started on. So how on earth an animal could spend three weeks in the plankton and return home was was a mystery. What we realised was that the acoustic cues of the reef were actually one of the key pieces of information that drew the animals back. And we started the, the, the early experiments. We were using speakers, underwater speakers that are normally sold to synchronized swimming teams. We could use those speakers and play back recordings of coral reefs. We started with light traps, which are these bright boxes that you can hang in the water. Animals are very often attracted to light at night. So you could then catch some of the animals and count them and identify them. And if we put the speakers next to light traps, we could more than double the amount of fish we caught in a night. And that showed us really that the soundscape was really important to the fish. And we then took that one step further and we built habitat on the seabed and then played the sounds down onto the reef and found that the fish were using that as a way of finding a place to make their home. So you were able to do an experiment with playing back sound so you had sound from previously healthy reefs and so what happened if you what happens if you play that back what we realized was that the healthy reefs were still attractive to fish the sounds from when that habitat was healthy still drew the fish back to the reefs or into the traps but the sounds of the reef as they were now were no more interesting to fish in the plankton than the sound of the open ocean. So there's this critical point here, which is that whenever we see some destruction in nature, you know, we think that nature will find its way back and be able to start again. And what you're saying is that in this case, because the sound had gone so completely, nature had no way of finding its way back. Well, and that's that was really for us the sucker punch. You know, we were really quite worried that that we were talking about something that was this very negative spiral into a, a very degraded habitat. What you came back with was knowledge, and perhaps some little bits of hope for what could be done, tools that could be used in the future. So, tell me about those. Yeah, we realised that these golden oldies, these recordings from before the bleaching, were still really attractive to larval fish and different invertebrate species. As part of the field season, we built larger reefs off the edges of these degraded habitats. We played the sounds of healthy habitat for an entire season, right the way through the breeding cycle of the fish, when the fish would then be in the plankton and coming back to land on the reef habitat. And we found that we could call fish to areas using old historic recordings when that reef had been healthy. So we we realised that we could start to restore the community that would be needed to be living in that environment and starting to build that reef back up again. We've become reef DJs. We're trying to mix the perfect tracks for different species in the right order. There are lots of key elements within that soundscape that we're starting to realise are the really most attractive sounds. One of them is the snapping shrimp themselves. So getting 
having the right density of snaps in your recording can be really crucial for then attracting animals in. So what's the future of all this, do you think? What what happens next in this this idea of acoustically rebuilding an environment? What happens next? Yeah, I mean, what happens next, I guess, is that we, we do go out there with greater numbers and we start sending our sound systems around the world, sending our recording systems around the world. And then by really sharing the knowledge of the value of trying playback experiments at restoration sites or areas that have been newly established as marine reserves, we can start to expand out the acoustic enrichment element of this. The other thing that we find simply by listening, we can hear the relative merits of different types of marine conservation programs. So it might be that we're not putting any sound into the ocean, but we can identify what type of reef structures might be the ones that are recovering the most the most rapidly but of course these are sticking plasters or at least they are a life support system and part of a life support system that we hope can keep these sensitive marine environments going while we try and address the big issue of climate change if we don't address climate change then while this might feel meaningful this might feel like we're making progress. Really, it's in the big picture a waste of time. But if we can start to really turn the tide on climate change, we can start to reduce carbon dioxide emissions and start to bring the carbon dioxide back out of the atmosphere, whether it's with marine or terrestrial regreening or other types of carbon capture projects. Then we're in a place where if we can maintain enough healthy environment, we've got the building blocks to try to then recover areas that have been harder hit. Steve Simpson from the University of Bristol. And you can find out more about protecting coral reefs on the Bertarelli Foundation's website, marine.science. We have no more time to waste. We need climate action now. Leaders from around the world will meet in Glasgow at COP26 to discuss economic, physical and social action. What we're facing is really nothing less than changing the direction of an entire global civilization in a matter of decades. But the reward is a much better world for both humans and the planet. There is a long list of things to do, so what should we prioritise? Lord Deben, former Secretary of State for the Environment and Chairman of the Committee on Climate Change, attended the very first COP as the UK delegate almost three decades ago. The UN says that in that time, climate change has gone from being a fringe issue to a global priority. So what have we achieved since then? And what policy changes are needed at this pivotal moment in the fight against climate change? Now, we didn't talk about the oceans, except in a very general way, right the way through that period. Of course, we talked about sea level rises. And indeed, my own first discussion with Mrs. Thatcher was on sea level rises, because I was responsible as the junior minister in the Department of Agriculture for sea defences. I was advised that there was no need in the decennial inspection. There was no need to raise the standards for sea defences. And I said, as a result of advice, it seemed to me that we should take climate change into consideration. And we did, but we only did it because Mrs Thatcher said that that was what ought to happen. Uh, that a, a was a very important change 
because, again, the science was driving her. And now, of you know, there's been obviously been a change that back then the ocean was not really discussed in the way we understand it now. And now, you know, people have talked about a blue cop and, and a big discussion of the ocean. How did the ocean sneak into the conversation along the way? Well, I think it was interestingly different ways. First of all, you will remember the Brent Spa occasion when all the science said that the best way to get rid of a redundant oil rig was to drop it in place where it was. Greenpeace took the view that that was unacceptable and they very cleverly built on what was an increasing public understanding of the oceans as a kind of free, clean, ideal place. The result was really remarkable, and it became very clear that the oceans had a role and a place in people's hearts which politicians had not recognised before. And I think that's where it started. And then there was uh, the British decision to um, ban putting sewage into the sea. This is not raw sewage, this was sewage sludge, which that has a contemporary thought, doesn't it? And I banned it. And remember the argument then, I said, if you don't put it in the sea, you do have to realise that it has to go on the land because there is no other place. And so that's what we've done ever since. And of course, it is now seen as a, a, a very important uh, improver of the soil. Those things were all going on together. And that brought a real concentration on the oceans. Moving on to what we actually need to do today then, what are the policies, you know, as far as you're concerned, the sort of priorities for oceans, particularly linking oceans and climates, what are the policies that we need to sort this out? Well, four. First of all, we've got to use the oceans more effectively, and that means using them for carbon sequestration and there's a positive policy, therefore, of um, planting seagrass and, and a great deal to be done on um, kelp. That's something which has really got to get into our system in order to have sequestration. We've then got to ban certain things. Bottom trawling is unacceptable. It's very bad as far as the uh, fish are concerned in any case. But by stirring up the bottoms of the seas, what we are doing, of course, is putting back into the atmosphere carbon which has been sequestrated. Thirdly, and really centrally, is that we do have to increase the areas of the oceans which are protected in order that the oceans can be self-regenerative. The Bertarello Foundation has really started it off, but my goodness, it's around the world now. And of course, modern technology makes that possible because you don't have to have ships patrolling them. You can do it all by technology. And that really does make a huge difference. And then lastly, but really above all, is we have got to stop polluting it. And the rules there, that's, that is a question of very serious international dealings with particularly with plastic and of cleaning up where we have damaged particular areas. But those things together do mean some really much tougher rules and regulations. So what do we need to do to actually implement all of this? Well, the way which we are going to get there is very complicated, but there are certain very obvious 
parts to it. First of all, people have always treated the high seas as if it's uh, free for all, and we can't go on doing that. So we have to have governments to take that seriously. Secondly, we obviously have to have all the other steps which need to be taken uh, in order to mitigate climate change. But thirdly, we have to recognise that this has got to be part of everything that we do. So businesses and individuals, organisations of all kinds, have got to think of the oceans within the series of things that they are trying to do in order to deal with climate change. The people who are buying fish, using all the products of the sea, all of those have got to treat that as part of their responsibility. And that therefore, whatever decisions we make, we have to ask that question, does this improve the situation with the oceans or does it make it worse? And I think that's not a question which is sufficiently asked by major businesses and by those concerned otherwise with sustainability. And it's one that we in my business and I in public life constantly demand. And just finally, how optimistic are you that we can combat the impact of a changing climate on our ocean? Oh, I'm optimistic because I partly because I think we have to. And I think more and more people are understanding that. And that every year that goes by, climate change becomes more obvious. Secondly, I do think the oceans now have got a centre in people's minds in a way which they had not had before. But of course, it's the overall thing that we have in the end to achieve, which is to keep the rise in temperature below two degrees. And that is going to be very tough. Although I remind myself that if I look back 10 years and then from that point look forward, I wouldn't have imagined that we'd have got as far as we have got. Paris Agreement was a remarkable breakthrough. I believe that since then there have been some really important changes. And I hope very much and expect that COP26 will move us on yet again. But COP26 is only the beginning, not the end of the process. These next 10 years are going to be the crucial years for human beings to decide whether they want to continue to exist and they want the planet to go on being what it is or not. Because everything that human beings have achieved in the past has been achieved in a climate different from the one that we are now going to have. So we are working in a situation which is without parallel and we have to rise to that. If we do, then we will show just how remarkable humanity is. If we don't, we will have sowed our own destruction. We've all been familiar with the phrase climate change for a decade or more. But the public conversation has changed so quickly in the last two to three years that it feels as though the full weight of this gigantic problem has suddenly been dropped on us from a huge height. It can feel overwhelming. And we can't sugarcoat the truth here. We have a lot to do and very little time to do it in. But while climate change was edging its way into the public sphere, scientists, innovators, communities and campaigners have been building an enormous foundation for action. We are not starting from square one. We've got good predictions for the consequences of possible courses of action, and we already have most of the technologies we need to change direction, 
So I see this point right now actually as a really positive one, because suddenly we have the will, we have the solutions, and we really do just need to choose to make this happen. And I really believe that although lots of parts of Earth's ecosystems have already suffered huge damage, we can choose to come out of this living better, fairer lives, which are more in touch with nature, and which bring out the best of humanity, creativity, human relationships, curiosity, humility and culture. There are tough times ahead, but this team effort, combining all of humanity, has enormous potential. Thank you to Professor Margaret Lenin, Professor Steve Simpson and Lord Deben. Next time, we'll be concluding the first series with a panel discussion with those who've witnessed firsthand the changes to our ocean and how they're working to protect it. One of the biggest steps in ensuring a healthy future for our ocean is to make it part of our own world. And that means talking about the ocean, sharing knowledge and ideas about it, and most of all, sharing our enthusiasm for the blue of our blue planet. That's why we make this podcast. And if you like what we're doing, please share it with your friends or followers on social media. It really helps us to spread the word about what's at stake. And if you're listening where you can leave a review, we'd love to hear what you think. I'm Helen Chersky, and Ocean Matters is a fresh air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. Follow or subscribe now for free wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.